kids are welcome to attend Children's Church at this time, and you can head right out the back doors where your leader will greet you. Hey, good morning, family. It's great to see you today. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, would you join me in a word of prayer, please? Father, we love you. We praise your holy name. There's no God like you. No one has loved us the way you have. And uh, this morning, uh, we need you, all that you have for us. The truths we've proclaimed in song and in prayer, uh, the truths that we put ourselves under in your word right now, uh, Lord, we need all that you can give us there. Would you meet us in our weakness with your grace and your strength and your compassion and your mercy and your love? Lord, lift us this morning by your gracious presence. I need your help. Father, help me to communicate your word faithfully, uh, with clarity, and with compassion, so that Christ would be exalted, and we would all be drawn to him. Father, let your love uh, be the resounding message of what we study this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you had a Bible with you, would you open up to the book of Romans chapter 1, please? And if you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to use the Pew Bible in front of you. Uh, I just think it's so important for our study that you can put your eyes on the words themselves and see for yourselves what we're studying. And if you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find Romans chapter 1, verse 18, on page 997. So your Bible open. I want to encourage you to take a few notes this morning. You'll be in good shape. One more word of clarification about Sunday school classes. Um, Membership class, if you're not a member of the church, I'd love for you to come check that out. I'll meet it with the membership class in the library, which is downstairs, and just walk towards the opposite end of the building. Uh, if you're looking for Pastor Steve's class, it's going to be in the fellowship hall. That's the class on forgiveness. So we've got two classes downstairs, membership and trinity, two classes upstairs, forgiveness and evangelism. It's going to be a great morning together. Romans chapter 1 is where we're going to spend our time today. Before and after pictures are always very interesting. They are a very compelling advertising tool as well. We all enjoy looking at the before and the after. Uh, companies really enjoy using them when they have a product that they're selling or something that they guarantee is going to make your life better. I look like a before picture for a hair plug procedure <laughs> or... I look like an after picture of a nose enhancement procedure. And I feel so sorry for all of you people with your tiny noses. I don't know how you even keep your glasses on your face. You're so brave. <laughs> but before and after pictures uh, are a lot of fun. I, it's right that we can speak of before and after in terms of our walk with Jesus Christ. The before would be who we were before we heard the gospel and said yes to Christ by faith. The after would be who we are by faith in him and also who we are becoming. What does the after look like of the Christian life? Well, the after sounds like something Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. We'll study it here in a couple of months. Paul says, therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a beautiful after picture. After hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
We love that. We're not condemned, but we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We love the after picture. And if that's what the after looks like, what does the before look like? Well, the before picture of our souls is pretty grim. And Paul's not going to skip over the hard truth, this before picture, in order to get to the more palatable truth. If you'll remember back a couple of weeks when we were in Romans chapter 1 also, uh, we said that verses 16 and 17 are Paul's thesis statement for the whole letter. There he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And Paul's going to spend the entirety of the letter expounding on that simple sentence. And in order to talk about the gospel that saves, he has to also describe the sin from which we need saving. And that's where we dig in this morning here at the end of chapter 1. We're looking intently at the before picture of the Christian life. It's who we are in our sin. And in fact, Paul's going to give a lot of attention, a lot of real estate to the issue of sin in the human life. Let me show you how the next few passages break down. Paul's going to give a pretty long instruction or explanation of sin in the human life. So all the way from chapter 1 verse 18 where we start this morning all the way to chapter 3 verse 20. This is one long argument on the total sinfulness of mankind. The passage we're studying this morning is all about the sin of Gentile non-believers, non-religious non-believers. He's going to spell that out clearly. Next week, we're going to be in verses two, chapter, chapter 2, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 8, where he's going to describe the sinfulness of religious non-believers or Jewish non-believers. And then he summarizes all of that, chapter 3, verse 9 to verse 20, by describing the total sinfulness of of all humanity. It is important that you keep in mind this is one large, long argument. We can't tackle it all in one Sunday. We're going to take a few Sundays to work through it. But Paul's going to put in front of us the before picture of our sin and why it is that God judges our sin. He's going to make sure we understand that salvation is not the reward for people who are righteous in their own way, but it's the gracious gift of God to unrighteous people who are deserving of judgment. And Paul's not an angry man who delights in bashing sinners. He just wants to make sure we understand the power of faith in Christ to save everyone who believes, regardless of your religious background, regardless of the life you lead now or you once led Faith in Christ is powerful to save everyone who believes. Now, these are hard topics to discuss. Uh, you have braved a lot of cold and a lot of ice and a lot of who knows what all to get here this morning. And for today and the next two Sundays, we have to deal with pretty heavy subject matter and especially if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're an atheist or you're an agnostic or you're just sort of generally spiritual, I want to be very upfront with you. What we study today and, in fact, in the next few Sundays might be deeply offensive to you, and here's why. The Bible teaches that truth and identity and correctness are determined by God who created us, but our culture thoroughly rejects this line of thinking. 
Our culture teaches that truth is determined by you. Your identity is determined by you. Correctness is determined by how you live out your truth and how much you embrace your self-determined identity. You see, the Bible teaches us that because of sin, there's something deeply broken in human beings. But our culture teaches that there's nothing wrong with you at all and don't listen to anyone who tells you otherwise. You've been told that if there is a God, it will surely reward you as you deserve by being your authentic self and living your truth. But the Bible teaches us there is a God and he will not give you what you deserve, but rather he will save you when you turn your life to him. And so today and the next two Sundays, we're going to study these passages of scripture that describe why every human being stands condemned before God. And here's why it's worth coming back. Here's why it's worth listening all the way through. Because we cannot consider the depths of our own sinfulness without also seeing the infinite and majestic love of God for his people. I promise you that the dominant theme of the coming Sundays will be the love of God that saves sinners like us. So Paul starts with hard news. And in this particular passage that we're studying today, he's describing why it is that all non-Jewish people, all Gentiles, stand condemned before God. The verdict is not in question. The verdict doesn't stand in some distant future. The verdict has already been determined by our sin. We are guilty before God. Paul is speaking this morning of every one of us in this room. If you read this passage as about them, whoever you define them as, you have not heard Paul in Romans chapter 1 today. This passage is about me. This passage is about us. And my goal today is to show you why it is we need salvation. Paul gives us three reasons we are not automatically righteous before God, three ways we are guilty before Him. I want you to follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Paul says this, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. In exchange, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desire of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what has been created instead of the Creator who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men, in the same way, also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. 
And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. It's a heavy passage. And what, what you as the reader have to keep in mind is that Paul is not speaking about some narrow demographic or one particular notorious group of sinful people. He is speaking of all mankind, all humanity, all non-Jewish, non-religious people. As we stand before God, we stand guilty. And he begins with this eternal truth in verses 18 and 19 that God is righteous. He lays this out before us over and over again in his letter to the church in Rome. God is righteous. If you'll remember back a couple of weeks, uh, we described the righteousness of God in this way. Righteousness, to call God righteous is to essentially say he's correct, he's right, he is the standard by which all things are judged holy or unholy, righteous or unrighteous. It, God is right, he is fair in his judgment. God is a righteous judge, and he judges all unrighteousness. Look at verse 18. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people. So God is the fair judge who judges broken, sinful, unrighteous people. That's all of us. So our starting point when it comes to our relationship with God, our baseline is not clean slate. Our baseline is not... Uh, some sort of, uh, like, we've got positive things in our favor. Our baseline before God, because of the sin we inherit from Adam, because of the sinners that we are, we are unrighteous, we are guilty before God. We're not basically good. We don't get credit for being better than a bad person or having good intentions or a few good acts. Paul, instead, in this passage, gives three reasons we stand guilty before God. Why are we guilty before God? Well, the first reason is our own corrupt worship. So in verses 20 and 21, Paul states that God has made himself known through a general revelation to all people, and all people have rebelled against him. So verse 20, look at it with me. Paul says, God's invisible attributes have been clearly seen since the creation of the world. So creation is the clear evidence of a creator. And instead of being inspired to pursue the creator, mankind has looked at mountains and oceans and trees and koala bears and has said, I'll worship creation instead. One thing I'm excited about this summer is the James Webb Telescope is going to start taking its first photographs. It's going to take pictures of the universe that we have never seen and there will be two kinds of responses to those photographs. One group of people will look at the photographs in stunning clarity and see these things we've never seen before, and they will say, wow, isn't billions of years of evolution neat? And others will look at those pictures and say, there is a God, a creator, 
who has seen all of these things, put all of these things in place. He's been here since he said, let there be. He's seen it and known it all. What has mankind done, generally speaking? We have taken God's general revelation of himself and we have rejected it. Paul describes idolatry in these verses. He says we've chosen to worship ourselves or birds or animals or reptiles. As we survey our pantheon of man-made gods and reject the immortal God, we've foolishly concluded this is wise. This is what modern man should be and do and how we should think. Paul is exclusive that Jesus Christ is the only way to a right relationship with God the Father. Anytime we speak of exclusivity, the exclusivity of Jesus, there's always objections that come up. One objection is this. It doesn't seem fair that God would condemn people who don't know Jesus. But remember what we just read in verse 18. God is a righteous judge of unrighteous people. He is the fair judge of sinful people. Another objection is, well, okay, what what about the innocent man in Africa who's never heard the name of Jesus? That person doesn't exist. To be sure, there are people all over the world who have never heard the name of Jesus. That is true. But to call them innocent is incorrect. Verse 20 tells us that all people are without excuse for rejecting God. Another objection. Shouldn't people get credit for doing the best they can in their own religion? But verses 20 and 23 tell us that people don't get credit with God for idolatry. Idolatry is sin. It is rebellion. It's rejection of God. It leaves a person unrighteous and guilty. What about your own life? Now, maybe you don't worship mortal man or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles, but if you are not creating the, or worshiping the God who created you, you are worshiping something else. Mankind is never not worshiping. So if your passions and desires don't belong to your creator, they belong to some other created thing. You may worship the idol of money or the idol of reputation or the idol of self-determination or the idol of your every desire. You may worship yourself. The question is not whether you are or are not worshiping. The question is what are you worshiping? And every person is guilty before God because of our corrupt worship of the created over the creator. This is our before picture. We are guilty because of our corrupt worship. It's not the only reason we're guilty before God. Second reason Paul gives us, first is our corrupt worship and second is corrupt desires. We're guilty because of our corrupt desires. So verse 24 says, therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. Verse 24 tells us that the result of mankind's idolatry, worshiping animals, rocks, trees, whatever, the result of that idolatry is God handing us over to the desires of our hearts to sexual impurity. So the idolatry of verse 23 leads to the sexual impurity of verse 24. And that same pattern is seen again in verses 25 and 26. 
Verse 25 describes the idolatry of worshiping creation rather than the creator. The consequence in verse 26 is God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. So question, what does Paul mean by sexual impurity and disgraceful passions? We have worshipped creation, we have been idol worshippers, therefore God hands us over to whatever we want to pursue in our flesh. Here we pursue sexual impurity, disgraceful passion. What are those things? Well, Paul tells us in verses 26 and 27. This is women exchanging natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. It's men lusting for one another and committing shameful acts with other men. Now, is Paul saying that the result of idolatry is only homosexuality? That's not his point here. Throughout Paul's letters, he speaks to sexual impurity in, in, in multiple expressions of sexual impurity. Here in this instance, it's right for us to say when God hands us over to our own idolatry, we, it will result in, it always results in sexual immorality. And one of the expressions of this sexual immorality is homosexuality as described here in Romans chapter 1. To be sure, sexual sin exists in many forms and in many expressions. And there's a connection to be drawn between idolatry, the rejection of God, the worship of creation in some form, and our pursuit of and exaltation of our own sexual desires that go beyond God's will. But here in Romans chapter 1, Paul speaks specifically and explicitly of the sin of homosexuality. Now, these verses have been mistreated through the years in two very significant ways. Two significant errors made with this passage. The first error comes from those who wish to rewrite this passage or ignore it altogether so that it does not say what it says about the sinfulness of homosexuality. The second error is by those who have weaponized these verses and used them solely for the purpose of condemnation. Both groups are in error. I want to speak to both errors this morning. Let me speak first to those who wonder whether or not this passage even teaches that homosexuality is sin. Well, I want you to consider how Paul describes this sin in Romans chapter 1. Paul describes it using these words. In verse 24, it's an ungodly desire. It's sexual impurity. It's degrading of the body. In verse 26, it's disgraceful passions and unnatural. In verse 27, it is a shameless act. And what Paul says here is consistent with the entire biblical record on the issue of homosexuality. Throughout Scripture, homosexuality is always consistently spoken of as a sin. We have no place in Scripture where it's discussed in a positive light. The biblical record is unequivocally clear from Old Testament all the way to New Testament. A popular objection today is to say this. Well, it's, it's not speaking of monogamous, committed homosexual marriage relationships. It's actually speaking of all expressions of homosexuality. We have no way where the biblical speaks in positive terms of that sexual expression. And so we can conclude that homosexuality is sin based on two factors. One is Scripture's strict prohibition and its description as being out of line with God's created order. Now, 
having concluded that, I, I want to ask an odd clarifying question. What is it specifically about homosexuality that is sin? Well, Paul describes it in two specific ways in this passage. He says, first, it is lust, and second, it is acting on that lust. It should come as no surprise to us that homosexual lust is sin because all lust is sin. Jesus himself said, if you lust after a woman in your own heart, it's as if you've already committed adultery with her. So this is not new ground for us as Bible readers and followers of Jesus. All lust is sinful. And then the lust that leads to action, that action also is sin. Here's what the Bible does not identify as sin. Very important, we're clear on this. What is not sinful is same-sex attraction. There are among us many men and women who identify in themselves an attraction to those of the same gender. And attraction is not the same as lust. Attraction is not the same as action. Now, if that's you, if, if, you've, if you deal with or have dealt with same-sex attraction in your life, it's possible you have been told some really egregious things by Christian people. Things like, you cannot be saved unless you no longer experience same-sex attraction. God will not be good to you as long as you identify yourself that way. But friend, there is no biblical support for that overreach and that condemnation. Jesus doesn't just save straight sinners. He saves sinners. And so if you identify in yourself that you wrestle with same-sex attraction, your first move has to be to run into the loving arms of your heavenly Father who knows you. You are not a mistake to Him. You are not damaged goods. You are not less than until you achieve better than status. He cannot love you more than He loves you now. You are adored by Him. Now, the Bible gives us two very clear expressions of, uh, of our human sexuality. God, our creator, has the right to say and to speak into how it is that he has designed us to experience these things in line with his will for the greatest joy and the greatest glory of God. And those two expressions of human sexuality are celibacy and monogamous covenant Christian marriage between a man and a woman. We don't talk of celibacy uh, in the church with, with the sort of intentionality that we should and the glory that it deserves. But one of my favorite podcasters said recently, in the Bible, celibacy, those who are celibate, single, that's the varsity team, and those who are married, that's junior varsity. That's Bible. And so being single, being celibate, it's not a curse this is God's grace and blessing and mercy to you. And in that life, there is compassion and friendship and fulfillment to be found when you walk in the Word of God in your sexuality. It is possible your same-sex attraction never changes. Cannot promise that that will be taken away or removed from you. But there is a way for you to walk in the good mercy and love of Jesus Christ when you live according to his word. Now, I said there are two errors with this passage. We've addressed the first. I want to speak to the second prominent error with this passage. This error is committed by 
those who weaponize this passage and use it for destructive purposes with hyper-focus. Look at these verses and think that all Paul's concerned with here in Romans chapter 1 is the plight of gay men and women. That's just simply not the case. The conservative Christian church has often abandoned the boundaries of Scripture in our treatment of homosexuality. We have operated more on assumptions and fear rather than walking in the powerful gospel of God's Word. We have assumed that homosexual men and women were moral monsters. We have wrongly equated them with other sexual deviants. We have not believed them when they told us these are attractions they have not chosen. We have insisted they change first before coming to Christ. We have been harsh and not compassionate. We have yelled and not listened. We have rejected and not embraced. We have not loved our neighbors, our children, our families as ourselves. Therefore, it is sackcloth and ashes time for all good Baptists. We must begin to respond to gay men and women in a way more reminiscent of the cross. We're in need of a pastoral ministry to those who experience ongoing, nearly exclusive same-sex attraction, who do not expect conversion to heterosexuality, but who want to live within the boundaries of Christian teaching and sexuality. They cannot be left on the outside until they clean themselves up. They must be ushered into the family, brought to the cross of Christ with love and mercy. We have to show Christ-like grace and friendship to those who struggle while holding fast to what the Scriptures teach. And if we are holding fast to what the Scriptures teach, we will show Christ-like grace and friendship to those who struggle. That's what the Word of God calls us to do. So many people with microphones have taken Paul's words here and blasted people with them, and they have forgotten the entirety of Paul's message. When Paul stands before people who are broken in sexual sin, what is his posture towards them? It's found in verse 14, I am obligated, obligated in Christian love to give them the gospel, to walk with them to Jesus Christ. I'm obligated to them. That's our obligation, is to love people all the way to the cross. I don't know where we got this idea that people will take Christian love and use it as an excuse for sin. That's not how you were saved. I've never met one single notorious sinner that says, I'm a wicked sinner because a Christian loved me. Christ saved you by His love, laid down His life for you. No one's ever said, I sinned because Christ was good to me. But we say, I'm saved because He loved me. This is who I was before and now here's who I am after because of the love of Christ. Church, we have to love more and more, unapologetically, without excuse, without equivocation. We must love people all the way to the cross. So we're guilty before God. Because of our corrupt worship and because of our corrupt desires. There's a third and final reason why we are guilty before God, and that's because of our corrupt minds. In verse 28, Paul says another consequence of our rebellion against God is that he's delivered us over to a corrupt mind. This is the third time in the passage that Paul's used the phrase, 
God delivered them over. It's an ominous repetition, like a chime on a clock announcing the time of our judgment has come. And in verses 29 through 31, Paul gives us a list of vices. It's a literary tool that's, that's meant to show us the enormity of the problem or a whole picture of the problem. Paul isn't so concerned here with the individual items themselves. He's concerned with the whole picture. Here's how totally sinful mankind is. This vice list was a common literary tool used in Paul's day. We find multiple vice lists in the New Testament itself. This is not a, an uncommon thing in our New Testament writing. Here's what's truly struck me as I've studied this passage the last few weeks. I've read this list in the past as the reasons for God's judgment. Why will God judge a sinner guilty, unrighteous? Well, it's because of these behaviors here, but that's not correct. These are not the reasons for God's judgment. These are the evidences of God's judgment. What's the reason for God's judgment? He articulates it in verse 28. They did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God. And so, as a result, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind, and this is now how they live under the judgment of God. Look, we've only thought of the judgment of God as coming in the future after we die, but the Bible shows us that people live under the righteous judgment of God even before they meet the eternal judgment of God. So our sin is not merely awaiting a future judgment. We have already been judged in a sense. And since mankind has rejected God, God has delivered us over to this hellish way of living as described in verses 29 to 31. Many people look at the world and they'll say, with so much suffering in the world, how can there be a God? But the Bible says we have asked for and been given these godless lives. The suffering in our world is evidence of our rejection of God. And our corrupt minds not only lead to evil actions, but also evil values. The section closes with verse 32. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. So verse 32 makes it clear that all people have this innate sense of right and wrong. Even if we disagree about the particulars, we have some sort of moral code imprinted on us by our Creator. And the only way for us to deal with such blatant rebellion against what we know is clearly right and wrong is to celebrate the rebellion and applaud those who do likewise. The prophet Isaiah described us in this way. In Isaiah 5.20, he said, We are the kinds of people who call light darkness and dark light. Our sinful lives may very well reveal that we are people whom God has already delivered over to our corrupt minds. So it's, it's a heavy start here in Romans chapter 1. Why are we guilty? Why do we need salvation? And the evidence against us is overwhelming. Paul has laid it out clearly. We are people of corrupt worship, corrupt desires, and corrupt minds. A very bleak scene. 
We've rejected God. We live under His judgment. We are guilty. But that's not the whole story. We are guilty and we are also loved. And you cannot miss this. I have four daughters. They have all possessed a sacred, safe object of some kind. And maybe you did too when you were little. You had a stuffed animal. You had a blanket, something that you would cuddle with at night or when you were afraid or just something that it's, it's in some cedar-lined box in your house right now. You've still got it. And my girls had those things as well. When they first received these objects, they were pristine. But after years of wear and tear, the animals are missing fur and eyes and blankets have lost their color and lost their threads. They've got holes in them. And if you were to ask my girls, hey, do you want to throw away those messy items? They would be deeply offended. They, they don't see the mess. If you were to offer them a brand new identical item to replace the old one, they would refuse. These objects are messy and they love them. And this is, in a small way, a glimpse of what God's love for you is like. You are messy, and He loves you. Paul's told us this morning, though, we're more than messy, right? We are broken in every way a person can be broken in sin. And knowing that, how incredible is God's love for you? What does that love look like? We're going to read about it in a few weeks in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Paul says, God proves His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He sees us in our sin. He sends His Son to die in our place, to remove His wrath entirely, to give us eternal and abundant life. That's what the love of God for you is like. And God's love for sinners changes a person. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, know that God loves you. A sinner changes the way you view the world around you. God's love for sinners changes your estimation of yourself. Christians often slip into self-righteousness marked by pride and hypocrisy. But Romans 1 humbles us before our holy God. Calls us to recognize our own sin. This is not about them. This is about me. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty in all these ways. God loves me. That humbles a prideful, hypocritical sinner. Not only does God's love humble the prideful, it lifts the broken. I've sp spoken with so many Christian people who define themselves only by their failures and always by their sin in this sort of self-defeat. God meets our sin with His love and He lifts us. Sister, you're loved by God. And brother, you are precious to Him. When we know that God loves sinners, it changes our estimation of ourselves. Not only that, it changes our estimation of other people. This passage doesn't identify enemies of the gospel, but targets of the gospel. We are obligated to love people like this, people like us, in a Christ-like way. And God's love for sinners changes your relationship with God for the better. When we look in the mirror of Romans 1... And then look at the cross, it adds fuel to our worship and an urgency to our sanctification. God loves sinners, that changes everything for us. And what if you're not a follower of Jesus? 
Well, then you have two different voices in your ear, even right now. The voice of the world says you are fine just as you are. But if we're honest, we know that's not true. We want that to be true, but it's not true. If we were fine, we wouldn't be in the condition we're in. If we were our own healers, we would be healed by now. We need a rescue and a salvation that comes from beyond ourselves. We need a salvation that comes only from our Creator. The other voice is the voice of God that says something like this, you're broken and I love you. So God's promise to you is that when you turn from your sin and you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you're going to be forgiven of your sin, saved from God's wrath, and given new life. Paul described the before and after of the gospel in another one of his letters. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, he describes that change, the before and after, this way. He says, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Before, alienated, hostile, evil, after, holy, faultless, blameless. Today's the day. This is the moment. Give your life to Jesus Christ. A pastor named Jack Miller once said this, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, and you're more loved than you ever dared hope. Let's run to the arms of our loving Heavenly Father. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love to us, a love demonstrated by the gift of your Son who died on the cross in our place for our sin. Though we are sinners, broken in every way a person can be broken, and guilty in every way a person can be guilty, how incredible is your love to us. So we're grateful for this kind of salvation, the salvation of grace, salvation by faith. And Lord, we need your rescue and your lifting today. God, I pray this morning that you would settle our hearts and that you would focus us on you, that we would turn by faith to Jesus Christ. Would you bring salvation to my friend in here that doesn't know Christ as their Savior today? Let this be the day that new life reigns in them now and forevermore. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in here that we would live with you in light of your powerful love that has changed us and transformed us, that we would live with an urgency in our sanctification and a gladness in our worship, knowing that we have been lifted from sin. Help us to love the way we have been loved. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.